that if you can pull off the partisan labels and you say you can still wear your MAGA hat, but you also can vote for a higher minimum wage, you can also vote for health care. I still wake up every morning feeling like ballot measures are one of our most promising paths towards changing people's lives. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Kelly Hall, who is the executive director of The Fairness Project, a group that uses ballot campaigns in red and purple states to enact measures that aim to improve the lives of working people. I spoke with Kelly about her path to this new role, how the Fairness Project operates, and what they're hoping to do in the 2022 election cycle. If you're interested in how ballot measures can be used to further the progressive movement and what the fight looks like in red and purple states, including the attacks from the right on the ballot process itself that are underway, you'll want to listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Kelly Hall of The Fairness Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Kelly, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am Kelly Hall. I'm the executive director of The Fairness Project. The Fairness Project is a nonprofit organization that lives and breathes ballot measures. So we work on ballot measures that improve the lives of working families, including raising the minimum wage, expanding Medicaid, curtailing the predatory practices of payday lenders and requiring earned paid sick leave and paid family leave. And we work largely in red and purple states um, because those are the places where legislatures and other elected officials are increasingly out of touch with their constituents and voters take these matters into their own hands. There must be only a limited intersection between red and purple and have access to a referendum process, right? Yes. So there's 24 states that have statewide citizen-initiated ballot processes. And that citizen-initiated just means that regular people can go collect signatures and qualify a ballot measure themselves. They don't need to rely on a legislature to refer a ballot measure to the ballot. So of those 24 states, a great many of them are actually red, what we would consider red and purple states, places like Missouri, Oklahoma, Utah, Idaho, South Dakota, Nebraska, Arizona. And there are our three westernmost states that are more traditionally blue that have those processes, California, Oregon, and Washington. But most of the 24 are in the Midwest, Mountain West 
and south that are are currently more red or purple. Got it. Before we get deep into the Fairness Project, I just want to ask you some more questions about kind of your route to this job. Where did you grow up and where'd you go to college? And tell me a little bit about your first jobs. Sure. So I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I am the daughter of a political science professor. Surprise, surprise. Was it your mother or your father? My father, my dad is Rick Hall. He studies uh, American institutions. So he studies Congress and he studies uh, special interest groups and, and lobbying at the University of Michigan. And so I was raised not with any organized religion, but with this idea that public service is how people come together to do good in the world. And that always felt like a very obvious path. Uh, I went to Brown University in Rhode Island uh, for undergrad. And between my junior and senior years, I started working on a U.S. Senate campaign for not yet then U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And Sheldon Whitehouse, by the way, has the best slogan for running for president someday that anyone could have. But Well, <laughs> even in 2006, when we were doing his first campaign, we um, and then it was, of course, during uh, the Bush administration, his slogan was a White House in Washington you can trust. I really loved. But of course, every single person in Rhode Island thought, you know, we should be putting him forward for president, which I would still support, by the way, if if Sheldon is out there listening. Um, So I was employee number four or five and continued to work for him during my senior year of college and then followed him to Washington and worked my first sort of job out of college was working in Senator Whitehouse's DC office. And I spent a couple of years there with him and then moved over to the house. Well, before, before you say moved over, what'd you learn there? Well, one of the things that I thought was a really impressive uh, decision that he and his chief of staff, Mindy Myers made was that they put all of the junior staff. I was writing letters back to constituents they put all the junior staff, rather than together in one office, they co-located them with the policy staff on the issues that they would be working on. And so I sat with the domestic policy staff and got to learn an incredible amount about health policy through osmosis. And that was really one of the primary areas that Senator Whitehouse was focused on at the time. It was the lead up to the Affordable Care Act in those years 2007, 2008. And so everything regarding palliative care and end of life care that he was working on and health IT and interoperability, I was getting to essentially sit in on all of the senior meetings because my desk was in the room. And so in addition to learning how to manage a to-do list and realize you don't get to take three or four days to think about something, you've got to just move fast in a fast moving office. I learned a lot of health policy content, which ended up being the next phase of my career, was really focusing on the Affordable Care Act drafting and, and, and passage. Boy, it's still such a crucial area of policy and still sorting itself out, isn't it? In the courts, in the legislature, and in people's lives. Absolutely. And I feel like there are a lot of us, whether we're in government anymore or not, who are sort of... Affordable Care Act expats who all have our own little 
thing that we're doing out in the world to see the legacy of that law through, whether we were in Congress at the time or in the administration or advocating for the law on the outside, it feels like there truly is this community of people who were in the thick of it 10 years ago, or now 12, and who are still living and breathing it because it hasn't been fully realized for all Americans yet. Right. And, and then indeed, that's part of what you're working on with the ballot initiatives. So what was next for you after that? After that, I went uh, to work for Congresswoman Allison Schwartz. She used to be a member of Congress from Philadelphia and the suburbs right outside Northeast Philadelphia. And she was also a member of the Ways and Means Committee. And so I was her senior health policy staffer for a couple of years, right there in the 2009-2010 period when we were wrestling through all of the drafting of the Affordable Care Act. And to get to be working with her on that issue, representing a district that had so many academic medical centers, biotech companies, healthcare is really one of the major employing industries in Philadelphia as well. She was living and breathing nothing but healthcare with the Ways and Means Committee during those years. And so I was you know, working 80, 90 hours a week for a couple of years, getting a lot of cavities and <laughs> losing my eyesight and really was in the trenches with, with people who are now my, my closest colleagues. So that was a really irreplaceable experience because there's no better way to learn an issue or learn how to advance it than to be in the thick of it with other people who are similarly passionate and finally have an opportunity after decades to, to get to do something about it. Yeah, it looks like you stayed in health policy for a while at, a, at another series of jobs. Talk briefly about each of those. Sure. So I went and worked with the Obama administration in two different roles. I worked in CMS's Innovation Center, which was a new part of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services set up by the Affordable Care Act to really think about redesigning payment programs in those public uh, safety net programs. So that was a lot about how do we get physicians and hospitals to move away from volume-based care towards value. And while that is a very easy slogan to say, it is not a very easy thing to execute. I spent a couple years there and then went and worked in Secretary Sebelius's Office of Healthcare Reform uh, in the Department of HHS, uh, which is sort of an air traffic control for implementing the Affordable Care Act. And my portfolio there was also Medicare and Medicaid. So you're really learning a lot about how the system works. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, how did you land ultimately at the Fairness Project as Director of Policy and Partnerships? Well, I left government in 2014, somewhat because we had worked ourselves out of jobs a little bit in the Office of Health Reform, and also it had been a long eight years. And at first I thought I would um, take a pit stop in consulting, which was a thing that a lot of us were doing. Let's, you know, help out figuring out a few problem areas and, and think about what's next. And I moved to California um, for a whole lot of reasons that people move to California. The weather is beautiful here. And so the avocados are great. 
And I started working with a large healthcare labor union out here that represents about 100,000 frontline workers, helping them think about ways that they could advocate for improvements in the Medicaid program here in California. And I continued to do that for a number of years. And they had recently founded the Fairness Project. The Fairness Project's origin story is born out of the generosity and vision of this large healthcare labor union in California, which has used the ballot measure process here to advocate for their families and their communities, but wanted to contribute their dues, their resources to helping raise the wage and improve benefits for working people in states where they have no organizing ambitions, but where they think the quality of living and the quality of of worker benefits needs to be elevated. And they started out on minimum wage as their primary topic. And I started working with them more and more, and then directly with the Fairness Project on potential healthcare ballot measures as we saw the election of of President Trump in 2017. So my full-time work with the Fairness Project really took off in the beginning months of the Trump administration when it looked like the Affordable Care Act could be overturned and the Fairness Project decided to go on offense and start thinking about healthcare ballot measures in red states that we could we could bring. You talk about sort of citizen initiated referenda but Actually, in practice, it tends to be policy advocates of some sort that lead that. They know issues very well. They, they advocate for it. They raise money around it. They, they help collect the signatures. You're going to fight for Medicare in Missouri. How does that happen, actually? How do you conceive of it? How do you start it? How do you make it happen? Medicaid in Missouri is a great example, so I'll, I'll take that one that you offered up. The folks that we work with on the ground, by the time we were engaging with them here in the last few years, there's a constellation of organizations in Missouri that have been trying to convince their legislature to expand Medicaid since it became an option for them after the passage of the ACA. So the root of almost all of the things we work on is local frustration with their elected officials. And we, as a national organization, are serving as a set of wraparound services, support, funding, expertise to help them pivot from their primary strategy, which was my elected officials should be acting in the best interests of their constituents, to we've hit a roadblock here and we are we need to move in a different direction. So in Missouri, we started having conversations with that coalition of groups, which included grassroots organizers, hospitals, local foundations, healthcare clinics. Back in the spring of 2018, we didn't actually bring this ballot forward to the voters until August of 2020. So there's a long period of time before any ballot measure comes forward where there's a lot of legal research, polling, coalition building, making sure everyone's on the same page that this is the path we should take, and helping those stakeholders figure out what is the budget for this thing going to be? How hard is it going to be to do? Do you have the human resources and the financial resources to do it? And so the Fairness Project's 
role in all of this is on that long front tail of the process, we help project manage and guide people through that set of questions. Do you have a strong policy that can stand up even to legislative tampering and legal challenge? Do we have viability polling that shows us that if we run a good campaign, we really can win with voters? Do we have a coalition that has the credibility with voters to show that this is a common sense, nonpartisan policy and can win in a place like Missouri? And then we've been around this block a few times before, and we know how much it costs. We are politicos through and through. And so we help build a real deal budget for folks and say, you shouldn't qualify this if you don't have the money to see it through. We don't want this to go on the ballot and then fail. If you can't come up with nine or $10 million, we shouldn't bring this forward. And then we are co-pilots with the campaign throughout the duration of the campaign. We are both a funder financially, but also we um, provide week in and week out in-kind services to make sure that once we decide to move forward with a campaign, it is run as a top of class endeavor. And we've won 20 out of the 21 ballot measures that we've been involved in. So it's both a process of helping people make good decisions about what to bring forward, and then also making sure that there's a really high caliber campaign that's brought forward to voters. It sounds like you're pretty careful about who you work with and you're not going to, you know, sully your record or set a precedent by working with something that's not going to make it. I think we are very open-minded about working with almost anyone who's curious about ballot measures on the front end. And we then help with a very rigorous process around what we think can actually win. These are really resource intensive races to run when you're running them in the places that we usually work, Oklahoma, Idaho, Nebraska, you can bring some issues forward in Oregon and win without batting an eyelash. So we do not take on races that we think are easy wins, as we would say, but we do feel very confident when we decide to move something forward, that we have a very strong pathway towards success. So to continue then with this example, which I think is is a good one, can you go into some more detail about, all right, that particular fight in Missouri, how did you put that one together with the people that you did? What did it cost? How close was it? Who did you come up against? Like the nitty gritty of, of making this happen. Sure. I don't know how long your listeners have uh, on this podcast. This is something I feel like we could write books about, but I'll give you the the summary, which is the coalition in Missouri, um, which we were a part of, included the hospital association, the primary care association, which is the, the clinics, a really phenomenal coalition of progressive groups known as MOVE, which is, I believe, and they're going to rake me over the coals for not remembering the acronym, Missouri Voter Education or Engagement Project. I forget the E. Um, but they collaborate across a wide swath of grassroots groups, jobs with justice and labor and Missouri Faith Voices and rural organizers. We had a strong set of those folks at the table. 
And there are some great healthcare foundations in Missouri that really helped to resource the work as well. And so we had a combination of signature collection done by volunteers and paid signature collectors that we knew from the outset would be opposed by the legislature and the governor. The legislature and the governor were throughout the campaign, the most vocal opponents of this. There was paid opposition. It came, you know, from the usual suspects of conservative think tanks and Americans for Prosperity type of folks. The Chamber of Commerce was on board with the campaign. Business leaders were on board with the campaign. We did not see any sort of organized business opposition. The opposition we saw in the final stages of the campaign really were appealing to the basest instincts from from Missouri voters. There was a lot of racist, your hospitals will be overrun by illegal immigrants kind of advertising that, that came after the campaign. But we ran a nearly $10 million campaign, all told, if you include signature collection and the, and the paid campaign, paid communications and staff. And we won by nearly six points. And we won in places around the state. Of course, it was predominantly carried by the urban centers of Kansas City and St. Louis, but we had strong turnout and support in in pockets all around the state. And even after that win, which passed a constitutional amendment that requires Missouri to expand Medicaid, we still saw a lot of blowback and pushback from the legislature, even after watching their constituents vote for this, even knowing it was in their state constitution. There was still a lot of gnashing of teeth and rending of garments and and wishing that they could undo the will of the voters. And we had to take this all the way to a court case just recently this summer. Medicaid expansion was set to begin on July 1st of this year. The governor decided not to move forward with it. And we won a unanimous Missouri Supreme Court decision. That's a hard thing to do to get all seven justices in Missouri to agree with us. And now Medicaid has been expanded in Missouri and and folks are applying and 275,000 Missourians stand to benefit from that change. I mean, it's quite a story. It's a story that ought not be in a certain sense, right? The whole thing, the, the sort of resistance to healthcare expansion is like the resistance to integration of schools or so many other things in history where people have to be dragged screaming into a better land. But uh, I guess you're seeing it firsthand. It feels the same way on the other issues we work on. We, We do a lot of minimum wage ballot measures. And of course, that has become more and more of a topic of conversation in our national politics. But we've worked on minimum wage races starting back in 2016. And altogether, our races will have put $22 billion of additional wages into the hands of workers by the start of next year. That is an enormous amount of additional spending power in the hands of working people, transformative in states like 
Missouri and Arkansas and, and, you know, all of the places where we've worked, Arizona, and the idea that we're still seeing such fierce resistance at the national level, we're not necessarily in all of these places raising the wage to $15, but raising it up from $7.85 to $11 or $12 or $13 still makes a, a tremendous difference. We are working with folks in Tucson right now who are putting a ballot measure to raise the wage to $15 in front of voters this November. And it feels really important to remind folks that it does matter that you elect federal officials who agree with the minimum wage increase to federal office and do something nationwide, but we can make a lot of progress by continuing to chip away at state minimum wage policies, which Arkansas has a higher minimum wage than Ohio by three or four dollars. Why is that? Let's move the minimum wage up in Ohio in the same way that we've been able to do in other places. Let's do it in Idaho. There's a lot of good work to be done out there, even while folks, and I respect deeply all of my colleagues who are pushing this forward at the federal level, and we have our part to play, which is moving it forward in the states. The name, The Fairness Project, gives some clues about, and your discussion so far gives some clues about kind of what the things are that you want to take on. But how do you think about the scope of the issues that you're looking to do this kind of work on? We think about it as what are the direct impacts on working families? So there are some things that if we pass this policy and it goes into an immediate effect, folks can see it in their day-to-day lives. So we have started out on economic and healthcare issues. I think of healthcare as an economic issue as well. So that includes paid family leave, paid sick leave, minimum wage, healthcare, curtailing the predatory practices of payday lenders, things that really can transform a family or a community by keeping folks out of bankruptcy and able to stay at work and able to provide for their families. We are also supporting coalitions in municipalities in various places in the country, either on these issues, but also on some of the police violence issues that are really taking a tremendous toll on working families in in those areas. So we're collaborating with folks in Austin, in Cleveland, on ballot measures that are, are coming forward in those cities this fall, and also want to help other advocates who are contemplating those types of changes for rethinking how police interact with their communities as they explore ballot measures as a tool. The other side has learned how to use ballot measures too. Are there ever cases where just the defense against a right-wing referendum is something that you would tackle or do? Yes. I I am hesitant to say this out loud, but I will. I think the the ballot measure arena is one of the few places where I think the left has to date out-organized the right, at least in the past 10 years. It's partially due to necessity. If you look at the 24 states that we have the ability to bring citizen-initiated ballot measures, they are largely states that are 
controlled both chambers of the legislature and the, the governor's seat by the right. And so we have more infrastructure, more funding infrastructure and more, more grassroots infrastructure around ballot measures than our ideological opponents do in many places, but they are catching on. And so we think about defense in two ways. One is we do think that there are some instances where a ballot measure is so abhorrent that we need to fight back. And though we largely bring proactive ballot measures, the engagement we're doing right now in Austin is a defensive campaign where a set of conservatives have put a ballot measure in front of Austin voters for this fall, requiring the city to spend more money on hiring more police and undoing a lot of the reforms to redirect the attention of the police away from mental health response and really taking things away from education, roads, investments in in public safety and requiring them to hire more and more officers. So we're working with local partners there on a no campaign. I think the bigger area of defense that we are wading into is against attacks on the ballot measure process itself which is really how our opponents have started to come after us. Rather than running their own campaigns to lower the minimum wage or something like that, they are working to make it harder to qualify ballot measures, and they're making it harder to win ballot measures. So we saw the legislatures in Arkansas and South Dakota, for example, have referred ballot initiatives to change their constitutions, defining that a successful ballot measure has to win by a 60% threshold instead of 50. And we're going to be fighting back against those efforts. There are other efforts where we can bring litigation or uh, push back against laws that make it harder for people to collect signatures and use this most democratic form of our democracy we see this as yet another attack on democracy, just like voter suppression and and other things that are happening in conservative legislatures right now. When I think about the arena of ballot measures, I'm kind of wondering about who are the important players besides yourselves. And I, you know, I talked to Chris, who runs BISC, uh, Ballot Information Strategy Center, and then of course there are consultants who specialize in ballot measures and in, in helping run those campaigns. What's the ecosystem of on the progressive side of ballot helpers, ballot measure helpers? Ballot measure helpers. I like that. So we each have our own different roles to play, I think. It's not a huge ecosystem. And BISC is very much a watchdog and a, a looking across the field and, and tracking a lot of the activity happening, convening folks. The Fairness Project is very much on the battlefield. So we are working directly week in and week out with campaigns. There's, as you say, consultants. A lot of organizations that you would think of as more issue specific have a lot of capacity and internal knowledge about ballot measures because they've used them regularly as a tool. So you have national organizations that care very much about the legalization of cannabis that have supported local coalitions in bringing marijuana legalization ballot measures. The ACLU has used ballot measures as a tool for advancing a lot of criminal justice reforms and 
restoring voting rights to people who have been previously incarcerated. And the ACLU has a lot of expertise in ballot measures. And I think that it depends quite a bit on what issue area you're talking about. There's folks in the conservation space who have brought ballot measures in Montana and elsewhere. There's folks at the American Cancer Society who care very much about tobacco taxes and have used ballot measures as a way of raising the tax on cigarettes. We are one of the very, very few organizations that are dedicated solely to ballot measures, but that once you identify the issue area you're working on, there are great minds of and people with a lot of expertise who reside in issue-specific organizations that have used the tool. Can you tell me a little bit more about Fairness Project? Like, how was it started and by whom? How is it funded? How big is it? Sure. So the origin story, which I alluded to earlier, really does come out of this remarkable generosity from a healthcare labor union in California, which had used the ballot measure process to improve their own working conditions in localities and in the state that provided the seed funding for the Fairness Project and thought we really need an entity that can help with the startup funds for ballot measures because so many local coalitions that are thinking about ballot measures don't have the resources to hire good lawyers, to do viability polling, to help bring in additional resources. And so sometimes things just get started you know, with some clipboards and you're nine tenths of the way down the field to qualifying before somebody realizes, ooh, this policy is not going to be quite as effective or quite as bulletproof with voters or in the courts as you would wish. And so we started out as being an organization that really provided some of that yeast at the beginning of the ballot measure process to help make sure that ballots were well-constructed and well-crafted or we were providing funding at the back end to say, you've qualified, now let us help you win. We're really doing soup to nuts now. So we are doing that early part of the incubation process with campaigns and providing support along the way. We are a lean team. We have at this moment, 10 employees. And we scale up and scale down our capacity given uh, what stage of a campaign cycle we're in. And though we are still financed by uh, labor in part, we raise resources from foundations, from high net worth individuals who care about these issues. We have a small dollar fundraising program. And then In the states that we work in, those campaigns are funded by different constellations of folks depending on the issues. So we are never the primary funder of a campaign, or very rarely we are providing a lot of the upfront resources that help draw other funders in by creating a sense of confidence that this thing really can win and will be well-constructed. So how has it been to move up into the role of running this organization after staffing it for a while? What's different and how do you like it? I love it so far. I'm new to the role as of the 1st of June. And 
it is an odd time to be changing roles. As we all know, everybody's remote. So we have a team, some of whom have never met each other before. And so figuring out how we do strategic planning, how we create team cohesion, how we find joy at work, even while we are all so distant from each other. And we have folks living in Florida and Texas and California and DC is something that I feel like none of us are really particularly brilliant at yet. I think there's no playbook for that. I'm very lucky that I still get to be involved in the campaign's work. I've spent a lot of time supporting our coalition in South Dakota, who's gearing up for a Medicaid expansion race, and I'm still talking to them every week. I can't totally set it down. But it does become a job that's much more about elevating the talents from the rest of the team and bringing awareness to our work and making sure we have the resources to do it well. So I'm finding that my job now has many more facets to it, lots more things to juggle in any given day than being able to just put my head down and think about South Dakota all day, every day. I'm curious with all this experience, how you feel generally about the progressive reforms of initiative referendum recall. We see the use of the recall right now in California, top news story really, and kind of a threat to have a low turnout person win the governorship over someone who was elected pretty solidly in a high turnout election. And obviously the right uses these tools as much as the left. How do you feel about them sort of generally? And do you have any suggestions about how they might be changed for the better or expanded or not? I live in California, so I am very aware of the threat of the recall I think of, you know, the recall and ballot initiatives are similar in the sense that they both start with signature collection, but they feel very different to me. First, a plug to everyone in California to get out and vote no on the recall. But beyond that, I think that the ballot measure environment in California is somewhat unique and that where we are mostly working, the ballot measure is a tool that has a very high bar to entry and is used on issues that are truly common sense, common ground issues. And they inspire a lot of hope in me that there are still issues, even in states where the progressive movement has somewhat given up hope on being able to capture many of the elected official seats that we still can make progress and that there's enough folks that want to raise the wage, that want to expand healthcare, that want to change the way that policing is done in their communities, that if you can pull off the partisan labels and you say you can still wear your MAGA hat if you want, but you also can vote for a higher minimum wage, you can also vote for healthcare. That gives me a lot of both hope and a sense of agency. I think that there's work that we can do to improve people's lives without having to wait for us to resolve all of the seemingly deeper and deeper divisions between people who are willing to vote for an authoritarian and people who find that abhorrent. And so 
I still wake up every morning feeling like ballot measures are one of our most promising paths towards changing people's lives. And we also have to vote no on the ones that come up like this recall of Governor Newsom that are truly threats to the progress that we want to see. What should we look forward to in the 2022 cycle? What's important? What are you working on? So we will have a full slate of of ballots. Not all of them have launched or become public yet, but I would say one we know for sure will be voting on Medicaid expansion in South Dakota in 2022. We will hopefully see minimum wage move forward in Idaho and Nebraska. I am hopeful that there will be paid family leave on the ballot in Maine in 2022 or 2023. We will be curtailing the the predatory practices of payday lenders in at least a couple of states. And we are hoping that there will be a lot of municipal work as well. There's the opportunity to do good work in large municipalities that in some instances have populations that are larger than states, Houston and San Antonio and Los Angeles and others, where we can bring city or county level measures on a whole host of issues and have more impact human being wise than we could if we were running something in in a state like Wyoming or South Dakota or, or Idaho. So we are exploring more and more those ballot measures. And then I would say you should keep an eye out for all of the defensive work that we are doing to protect this aspect of our democracy. That is an increasingly large portfolio for the Fairness Project. We see it as existential, not just for us as an organization, but for progressives who want to be able to make any change in these large swaths of the country. And so we will be branching out into more litigation, more uh, defensive ballot measures as we stand up and fight back against those kinds of attacks. Any of those in the sort of anti-voter suppression, redistricting, right to vote, right to have your vote counted equally area? We have not started working on those ballot measures, though there very well may be some in the works. We know that redistricting is one where folks are working on ballot measures around the country. We are not yet, as an organization, involved in those. But we do see ourselves as standing shoulder to shoulder with those organizations and those efforts because it's the same state legislatures who are trying to both limit who can vote and how they can vote. And our piece of it is what can they vote on? And that, what can they vote on? Do they have the right to vote on the issues that matter most to them? Is something that really offends some conservative legislatures. They don't want people to be able to go around them and write laws themselves. They very much believe that they are the one true voice of their constituents, even when our initiatives reveal very much how they are out of sync with the voters who elected them. And so not only do they want to tamp down on voter participation, our work really pokes a finger in the eye of them being representatives of the areas that they are supposedly elected to represent. And so we see them coming for the ballot measure process very aggressively, and we are standing up with similar, if not greater fervor and passion to make sure that we beat back those attacks. Kelly, is there a question that I haven't asked that 
you'd like me to or would like to answer? I don't think so. I think this has been a really enjoyable conversation and wide ranging, and I really appreciate the opportunity. It's an honor to talk to you. I'm glad you're fighting the fight that you're fighting, and I hope you continue to have a win record as uh, impressive as it's been so far. Thank you so much. That was Kelly Hall. Kelly is at thefairnessproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.